So um, my name is Nate. I serve as one of the elders here at Christ City Church. Welcome. Um, you've been welcomed already. I realize that we welcome people a lot. So I hope you feel welcome. Um, I want to introduce you to our guest preacher for this morning, uh, Mark Charles. Mark is a dynamic and thought-provoking public speaker, writer, and consultant. The son of an American woman of Dutch heritage and a Navajo man, he teaches with insight into the complexities of American history regarding race, culture, and faith in order to help forge a path of healing and conciliation for the nation. He is one of the leading authorities on the 15th century's doctrine of discovery and its influence on U.S. history and its intersection with modern-day society. Mark co-authored, along with Sung Chan Ra, a book entitled Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery, which will be available out in the hallway after the service. Most recently, Mark ran as an independent candidate for the U.S. presidency in the 2020 election. We're excited to have Mark with us today, and uh, he'll be preaching from Acts 10. So if you can stand, um, I'll, for the reverence of the readings of, of God's word, <laughs> I'll read from Acts 10. It is a bit long. If you do grow weary, you may sit down. Um, but uh, let, me, let me begin. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, replied Peter. I have never eaten any impure, anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask, ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. 
But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising an objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for um, the word that you have prepared in the heart and the soul of Mark Charles. Um, we thank you for our brother and that um, that you've, you've brought him to us today and, and that you've uh, given him as a gift to our congregation. So we just, we pray your spirit upon him. Um, Lord, we trust your spirit to communicate to us the things that you would have us to know and to learn um, about ourselves, uh, about you, and about the world in which we live. So, Lord, would you, would you bless him with and anoint him with power, with authority, um, with prophetic words, Lord, uh, for, our, for our sake and for the sake of your kingdom. So we pray all these things in, in Christ's name. Amen. Yate. Mark Charles Yenish, yeah. Sin beke dena initially, do tohiglini basichin. Sin beke dena dasicheto to the chitni dasinella. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say Tsinbeke Dene'a. Loosely translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbeke Dene'a. And my fourth clan, my father's father, is Todachitni, which is the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge today that we are standing on the land of the Piscataway. The Piscataway are the nation that they were living here, hunting here, farming here, fishing here, raising their families here and burying their dead here long before Columbus got lost at sea. And they're still here. I've had the honor of meeting some of the Piscataway. I've been welcomed to the lands and been at some land welcomings by the Piscataway. And so I want to publicly honor and acknowledge them as the host people of these lands. I want to thank the Piscataway for their stewardship of these lands. And I want to just state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. Let me begin um, by praying for us very briefly. Creator, thank you for another day. Thank you for the sun that rose this morning. Thank you for the beds we had to sleep in and the food we had to eat. Thank you for the chairs we have to sit in and the, the people we have around us. Thank you for community. Thank you for um, even the masks that we have to wear and and the health that you've given us. Creator, we pray for our nation, for our world that is suffering and struggling. We pray for those close to us, maybe even some of our own families, maybe even us at some point who are sick. 
who have lost loved ones, who have seen and experienced death in our immediate relationships. Creator, there is so much brokenness and pain, so much trauma going on in our world, and we pray that you will bring healing. We pray that you will help us to do what is best, not only for our own lives, but for the health and the well-being of our community and of those around us. We pray for your mercy. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, all of us have our stories of what we've done during the pandemic, right? Maybe you've learned how to play guitar. Maybe you've lost 10 pounds. Maybe you've gained 10 pounds. We've all done something during the pandemic. During the pandemic, I have been pondering this passage of Acts chapter 10. And I pondered it for close to a year and finally got to a place where I began to, after wrestling and, and having it out with God and really trying to understand some things, I got to a point about five or six months ago where I was able to begin teaching about it. I started talking about it on my social media. I started tweeting and, and Facebooking about it and putting things on my Instagram. And then maybe three or four months ago, I began preaching it in some of the services I've done. And since I started preaching it, almost every church that invites me to preach, when we talk about what passages I can preach on, I always suggest this is one of them, and almost always this is the service, or this is the passage I get to preach on. Now, all of those have been virtual, and so this is really the first time I'm preaching this sermon while wearing pants. <laughs> so it may be a slightly different experience, we'll see. Um, not that I'm not wearing nothing when I'm on virtual, but I'm wearing shorts or sweats or something. I don't have shoes on. And so this is my first time wearing pants while preaching this sermon. And we'll see how that affects the service. <laughs> You're talking about race and inclusivity. Your church has a value for being inclusive. Racially, ethnically, economically. LGBTQ, IA2S+, you are looking and understanding how do we live out this call, this life, this ministry of inclusivity in this world. In this world that tends to deny the humanity of so many people. And even in your beliefs and value statements, you state that one of the fundamental beliefs you have of why you're doing this is because of the unique work that Christ did on the cross, that his death and resurrection restored relationship between all of creation and the creator. And what does it look like to live this out and to understand this? And I want to address the question today. I don't like looking at you through mics. I want to address the question today of why is this work so hard? Right? It's been 2,000 years since this sacrifice was made. It's been 2,000 years since we've known about the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. It's been 2,000 years that we've been going out and preaching this gospel into the world. And why not only does the world struggle to acknowledge the humanity of so many people, but why does the church struggle to acknowledge the humanity of so many people? I want to talk to you as both a Navajo man and a Dutch American man. I want to tell you a little bit of my story and how I've struggled through this in the past as well as in the present, not only as a 
Navajo man, but as a Dutch American man. Ultimately, I want to show, tell you how I've struggled with this and understanding these scriptures as what most of us are, which is Gentiles. People who are not assimilated to Judaism. What does it mean and where do we get written into the gospel story? On my father's side, my grandparents were boarding school survivors. They were taken from their homes and put into these military-style boarding schools, and they were told by white Christians that they had to give up their language and their culture and their understanding of the sacred. They were punished, they were beaten, they were abused, and told that God will love you if you become like a white American. And if you accept this culture and this language and our understanding of what is sacred. And my grandparents accepted that. They became Christians. And so they didn't raise my father with his language or his culture. They didn't raise my aunt with the understandings of who she was as a Navajo woman. And so my father and my aunt didn't know these things to teach them to me. I was born into a mission compound at Rehoboth, just off of the Navajo Reservation. It was run by the Christian Reformed Church. It was established in the early 1900s as a boarding school, where children, again, were taken from their homes and put into these military-style boarding schools and punished and abused and even molested for being Navajo, being Native. And they were forced to give up their culture to become like an American. My grandfather, the school was transitioning from being a boarding school to being a day school while I was there. I was there as a day school student. There were others there as boarding school students. Oftentimes our experiences were vastly different. My grandfather worked as a translator for the early missionaries in the school or in this church. And he would come home, my father would tell me, from the meetings with the missionaries, frustrated because at these meetings they had a room set up and they had a table in the center and all the white missionaries sat along the, on, along the, in the table in the middle and all the translators sat in chairs along the wall and the translators were not allowed to speak unless they were spoken to. And so my grandfather, who knew English fluently and understood Navajo fluently and knew our culture and our people and understood how to bring the gospel best to our people, he had to sit there and listen to these white missionaries flounder about coming up with these dead-end ideas of how to bring the gospel to our people, and he couldn't say anything because he was not white and he wasn't sitting at the table. And he would come home so frustrated because he didn't know how to be treated as equal in that room. But again, this was the gospel he was presented. When I was raised up, I was in a white evangelical environment. I grew up in a very conservative, the Christian Reformed Church, very white evangelical church. And the way that this church saw itself as being written into the gospel story is how most American Christians see themselves, which is they saw themselves as the new Israel. We are brought into this covenantal relationship and we are the new Israel. They even called their mission Rehoboth, which comes from the book of Genesis, which says the Lord has given us room and we shall flourish in the land. And if you say the history of that land, that is an absolute lie. That was not given by God to those people. It was ethnically cleansed by Abraham Lincoln. 
as he was trying to build out the Transcontinental Railway. And genocide was enacted so that this mission could be established. God had not given them that room to flourish. They stole that land and ethnically cleansed it so they could complete their manifest destiny. But the white evangelical church truly believes that they are the new Israel. They truly believe that they have a land covenant with the God of Abraham. They truly believe that Turtle Island is their promised land. I go into a lot of white evangelical spaces and tell people, you are not God's chosen people. You do not have a land covenant with God of Abraham, and Turtle Island is not your promised land. And to some, that comes as a shock. Now, to many of you, you probably think, well, we don't believe that. That's not what we think. That's not how we live. Well, think about the national crises that we have. Think about the white supremacist attack on our capital a year ago. Think about 9-11. Think about the hurricanes or the tornadoes or the earthquakes that have hit our land. Think about when the last administration you were opposed to was in power. How often did you cling to the scriptures from 2 Chronicles chapter 7 that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and what? I will heal their land. See, that passage, which the church, both evangelical and progressive, claims, is actually from the second dedication of the temple, where God's reiterating the threats and promises of his land covenant. If you read this book, you will understand very clearly God did not give this land to white Americans. They ethnically cleansed it. They committed genocide on these lands, and then they brought in people from Africa enslaved them and had them build it up. The blood that is dripping from these lands is thick and grotesque. And yet, whenever we have a national challenge, we cling to this land covenant that says, if we, forgive, if we confess our sins, God will heal our land. That's not how it works for us. We don't have a land covenant with God of Abraham. Yes, we should confess our sins. Yes, we should humble ourselves and pray. And yes, God will forgive us. He will not heal our lands. We stole these lands. If anything, he'd give them back. So we all cling to this narrative. It was actually early in my adult life when I was doing discipleship with an indigenous man from Israel. He was a Messianic Jewish believer. And we were doing a shared discipleship. And I went to Israel and Jerusalem and spent time with him. And he came to the reservation and spent time with me. And when I got to Jerusalem to spend two or three weeks with him, my family was with me, Rachel and our son David. And one of the first things he said to me, he says, Mark, as an American Christian, you've been taught to read the Bible incorrectly. You've been taught to read the Old Testament as an insider, like it was written to you. And the Old Testament, you read that as an outsider. That covenant is not a covenant God made with you. You can't claim those promises. You have to read that as an outsider. I can still glean from it. I can still learn from it. I can still observe it and see what God did and how he lived out that covenant. But I have to understand those promises were not written for me. Now in college, I got to know Jesus really well. College is where I began to own my faith. I often tell people, I was raised as a Christian. I don't even remember when I first became a Christian. I've always lived within the church. 
But in college, God went from becoming my luggage to becoming my Lord. And I met Jesus personally. And I remember seeing myself as a disciple of Jesus and following him and, and wanting to be a part of what he was doing. I allowed him to actually influence and even lead my life and the decisions I made. And so for a while, I had the best of both worlds, right? I was both a white evangelical with this land covenant and a disciple of Jesus, and it was really great. And then God began stripping that of me when he started teaching me through this friend in Jerusalem. But I began continuing on this road of understanding what does it mean to be native and be Christian? How do I follow Jesus as a Navajo man? I began working of what does it mean to contextualize my faith, to understand my, what it means to understand my language, my culture, the food we have, and how do we bring that to, to our worship of God. I was engaged in those dialogues, and I am still engaged with those dialogues, not only here in the U.S., but globally, working with indigenous Christians to help them as we decolonize our faith. I even started, uh, I was one of the founders of a conference we started with InterVarsity and Campus Crusade called Would Jesus Eat Fry Bread? Which was for native students to come together and ask the questions of what does it mean to be native and be Christian? Because the message was you can't be, you have to become white first in order to be a Christian. And I began working a lot and then I began learning about the doctrine of discovery and teaching the things I've been teaching for the past decade calling for a healing and a conciliation within the nation and within the church. And I had a vision of what if we could have a church and a nation where the humanity of everybody was accepted and acknowledged, and you didn't have to come in and fight to your humanity acknowledged just to be in the room. And I was so convicted of this vision that I actually ran for president. And I wanted to build a nation where for the very first time, we the people actually meant all the people. And while I had no sense that God had ordained me for this and he was going to make me president, I thought, you know, I'm fighting for something that God seems to value, so perhaps God might help give me a little platform to bring this message to the world. Yes, I don't, I'm not saying God's going to make me president, but this seems like a dialogue that we should have, especially since it's from a heresy that his church has been teaching for 2,000 years. And a year and a half ago, in the middle of the campaign, when it was becoming apparent that I was not going to get this national audience, I was not going to get into this middle of this national dialogue that was going on, I began to wrestle with God. Where are you? How do I relate to you? How do I interact with you? I'm trying to do something that I think is core to your values and your message, and I don't know what I'm getting wrong. How do I relate to you, God? Now, throughout my life, there's been different points where I'll say these massive prayers and God will sometimes lead me over the course of five or ten years of a new understanding. Other times, he will whisper something in my ear. And it will lead me down a path that will fundamentally change my understanding of what it means to follow God and to be a Christian. And that morning, as I prayed, God, how do I relate to you? God whispered in my ear, probably one of the most dissatisfying sermons you've ever heard, right? Not dissatisfied because it's challenging and you don't know what to do with it, but dissatisfying because you know absolutely in the core of your being that what is being preached on is not 
wrestling with what the text is saying. And that's the passage of the Seraphonician woman. Right? If you've been in church any length of time, you have heard most likely a sermon on this passage, and it feels dissatisfying because at the end of the sermon, Jesus comes out looking great, even though he said to this woman, this Canaanite woman, this Gentile woman, who came to have her daughter healed of demon possession, Jesus said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. When she continues to press and says, heal my daughter, he says, why would I give to the dogs what was meant for the children? Now the church can preach that sermon and still make Jesus look good. But you know in your heart of hearts, you're like, no. That's, there's no way you can make Jesus look good here, right? Had you been under the impression that Jesus loved everybody and had you been that woman there that morning, even though your daughter got healed, you would have walked away saying, that's not what I expected. And she is tenacious, right? She says, yes, that's the way it works, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. Now Jesus, whenever... Whenever he sees impressive faith, he is radically inclusive, right? When the lepers come to Jesus who have been in isolation for all of their lives, they come and they express faith that he can heal them. He doesn't just heal them, he touches them. When a bleeding woman who's been living outside the community for 12 years comes and expresses faith that he can heal her, he doesn't just heal her, he listens to her whole story and welcomes her back publicly into society. Even the Samaritans who were outcasts, but because they're part Jewish, when the Samaritan woman had an interaction with Jesus and she expressed faith, Jesus goes back to her village with her. When tax collectors who had sold out to the Roman government come and express faith, Jesus goes into their home. Anytime anyone remotely associated with Judaism expresses faith in Jesus, he overwhelms them with radical inclusivity. And this woman has great faith, and she presses Jesus, and he says, your faith is great. But he doesn't correct her. He doesn't say, my daughter, you're not a dog. He says, you got it. You understand it. Here's a bone. And he heals the girl remotely. Now again, I've explained that passage away numerous times. I've preached sermons on it, making Jesus look good. But I'm running a campaign and I'm telling this country that we should probably take our Constitution at face value. Right? People think our Constitution includes everybody. And during the campaign, I started telling people, if you truly believe the campaign or the Constitution was written to include everybody, get into a diverse group of, or a diverse room and read the thing out loud. I said, you will be shocked and appalled and embarrassed at how quickly the Constitution becomes exclusive. And we've never corrected these things. And I say, if we can't acknowledge what it says, we're never going to fix it, right? Joe Biden loves to misquote the Declaration of Independence. He loves to say, we hold the truth to be self-evident. All men and women are created equal. That sounds beautiful, Joe. I truly believe that men and women are equal. Unfortunately, that's not what our Declaration of Independence says. It says we hold this truth to be self-evident. All men are created equal. And the Constitution never mentions women. 
51 gender-specific male pronouns. He, him, and his. Not a single female pronoun in the entire Constitution. So I'm telling people, if we want to fix these problems, we first have to acknowledge that they're there. So I thought, I cannot explain this passage away. I'm going to let the passage say what it appears to be saying, which is Jesus held the ethnocentric views of his time. Now, this is challenging, right? We don't like to, acknowledge, to, to go that route. Why? Well, the reason we don't like to go that route is because we have a written theology about Jesus' life and we have a lived theology about his life. Your written theology is actually on your website. His unique ministry of being crucified and resurrected from the dead is what reconciles all things back to Creator. This is your written theology. The reconciliation, the restoration of relationship with God comes when? At his death, correct? But the lived theology we take about Jesus is that that resurrection happens at the birth. And so we read the gospel stories of Jesus like they were inclusive of everybody. When technically his three years of ministry took place before that reconciliation, before that sacrifice, before that was made. And he came not to keep the moral code of 2021 perfectly. He came to keep the Old Testament law perfectly. And the Old Testament law required what between Jews and Gentiles? That they're separate. Right? So suddenly this passage makes a whole lot more sense. It's uncomfortable because it goes against our lived theology, but it actually lines up perfectly with our written theology. So then I'm asking, okay, Jesus, if that's what you're doing, where do I get included? And now I'm looking for where are your other interactions, not with Jews, but with Gentiles, and there's only three. In the book of Luke, we have the interaction with the centurion who wants Jesus to heal his servant. Jesus goes, the people come and say, he loves our people, he built our synagogue, he knows all about us, he loves us. You have to do this for him. So Jesus goes that way. He's probably wondering what he's going to do when he gets there, because again, Jews are not allowed to go into the homes of Gentiles. But he's going as he gets closer to the centurion, who is not only in, in charge of maintaining order, He's in charge of keeping the peace, and he's probably well aware that if a prominent Jewish rabbi or teacher, leader, goes into the home of a Gentile, it will cause a social uproar and disrupt the peace that he is mandated to maintain. And so as Jesus gets closer, he's like, hey, you don't have to come inside. I understand how authority works. I say go and go. I say this soldier come and he comes. You can do this outside. Jesus probably breathes a sigh of relief. And he's like, you have great faith. And he heals the centurion's servant. But he doesn't, nothing else, right? Anytime anyone else expresses great faith, Jesus touches them, he hugs them, he goes home with them, he does whatever. He does nothing, he just goes on. Never goes into the guy's home. Then we have the story of the demoniac. This man, this Gentile, he's across the sea. Jesus goes, he finds him, 
The man is not only possessed with a demon, he's possessed with multiple demons. Jesus casts him out. They go into the pigs. They run down the ocean, jump, jump into the sea. He's sitting there with this man in his right mind. And as Jesus gets up ready to leave, the guy says, not just says, he begs Jesus to let him follow him. And Jesus says what? No. No. Go home and go back to your own people. Tell them what God did for you. But no, you can't follow me. So now I'm like, holy crap. One Gentile you call a dog. The other one you don't give it at home. And the third, you, he begs Jesus to let him follow him. And you say no. So, so where do we get included? Well, I've always read Acts 2, right? This is the Pentecost. This is the story. We have this Holy Spirit falling. The disciples are talking the language of the nation. There's people of every color and every nation, of every, all over the world who are in Jerusalem. And I've always used that sermon as a picture of God's inclusive ministry and of what the church is supposed to look like. And it sounds beautiful, except in the beginning of that section, it says there were in Jerusalem what? Jews from all over the world. All the men were circumcised. All the people ate kosher. They all went to synagogue. They all kept the sacrifices of the temple. They all worshipped in Hebrew. They all had assimilated to Judaism. So I'm like, crap. I'm not written in there either. So where, God, where do I get included? Not just as a Navajo man, but as a white man. Where do we become a part of the story? And I get to Acts 10. And there's a Gentile, Cornelius, who loves the Lord and cares for the poor. And an angel comes and tells him to send for Peter. So he sends his people to go get Peter. Peter is in Joppa. He is on the rooftop. He's praying and he falls into a trance and he sees this sheet fall down with all of these unclean animals on them. Now, G Peter was with Jesus in Mark chapter 7 when Jesus declared all foods clean. He was there. But here he definitively tells the Spirit, never, Lord, I've never eaten anything. Jesus might have made that food clean. We never touched that stuff. And it's true. There's no example in the Gospels of Jesus eating with Gentiles. And so Peter definitively declares here, we never ate that stuff. It might be clean now, but we've never touched it. He sees that three times. He's pondering what to do. The men from Cornelius' house come. He goes with them. He walks into Cornelius' house, and he doesn't say, oh, I remember the centurion, right? The guy had great faith. Jesus not only healed him, but went into his home. No, he didn't, because Jesus didn't do that. Remember, Jesus stayed outside. So when Peter walks into Cornelius' house, what's the first thing he says? <laughs> I shouldn't be here, right? We have a law that says, you're a Gentile, I'm a Jew. I, I should not be here. He doesn't say, Jesus showed me I should come in here. He said, I saw this vision that I don't know what to make sense of, but it prompted me to come, so tell me why I'm here. Cornelius tells him the story. 
Peter preaches to them. And as he's preaching, he sees something he saw before at Pentecost, which is the Holy Spirit descending. But this time it's not ascending on Jews. It's not ascending on proselytes. It's not ascending on men who are circumcised and people who keep kosher. It's ascending on Gentiles. And it was so unbelievable that the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers who were traveling with Peter, were astonished and said, even the Gentiles are being given the gift of the Holy of, of God, the Spirit of God. And so Peter does something that we have to acknowledge how completely outrageous this is. This is Peter, who was raised as a Jewish man. Yes, he wasn't a member of the elite, he was a fisherman, but he was raised in the Jewish culture. He knew from birth that there was a separation between Jews and Gentiles. He spent three years with Jesus. He never went into a Gentile's home. They never ate unclean food. They never allowed Gentiles to follow them. He had no clue. There was nothing that informed them that this message they had might actually be for uncircumcised Gentiles. They were probably still thinking they were using the Old Testament way of becoming prostatites, which was assimilating to Jewish culture, and then you could be included. But Peter, when he sees what the Holy Spirit's doing, he does something which is unbelievable. And he says, there's nothing to prevent me from baptizing you. The baptism with water is merely a symbol of what's happening with the Spirit. The Spirit has already descended upon you. There's nothing I can... He's not only throwing out a lifetime of Jewish cultural understanding, he's throwing out three years of what he saw modeled by Jesus. This is amazing. Not completely unprecedented, though. Remember when Jesus was comforting his disciples. He said, I'm going to die, and I'm going to go away, but that's actually better for you. Because when I leave, I will send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will enable you to do things even greater than I. Now, we read that like it's hyperbole, right? We read that like, yeah, <laughs> whatever, Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is absolutely doing something greater than Jesus. He is doing something Jesus never did. He's standing in a Gentile's home. He's baptizing uncircumcised Gentiles and their families into full communion of this fellowship. He is being so radically over-the-top inclusive, it's greater than anything Jesus ever did. It's based on the blood of Christ, but it's absolutely not following the model of Christ. Remember, we have a lived theology and a, and a, and a written theology. The written theology says the, the reconciliation happens at the death. Our, our lived theology, which is primarily out of convenience, 
says that happens at the birth, and that allows us to read the entire gospel story like this is the model of what inclusive ministry looks like. And it's not. Acts 10 is the model of what radical inclusivity in the gospel story through the blood of Christ looks like. And you know what happens after Acts 10? The church blows up. In Acts chapter 2, we're told all believers were together and had everything in common. In Acts chapter 9, we're told all believers were together and had everything, they were unified. After Acts 10, we never hear of that kind of unification again. Instead, we hear stories of Paul and Peter arguing. We see the disciples having a council of what do we do with these Gentiles? How do we include them? And this book that began with this radically inclusive yet assimilated picture of a church and not with it being now happening across these Gentile lines, but now we see the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, sitting alone in an empty apartment, rented apartment, writing letters, trying frantically to hold this thing together. So why is it 2,000 years later and nothing has changed? Why is this work so hard? Nothing's changed because we're following the wrong model when we follow the model of inclusivity in the Gospels, it allows us to inconveniently avoid going into someone's house whose our presence there would cause a disruption in society. Following the model of Christ allows us to conveniently tell people whose presence in our ministry would be a social disruption, make things uncomfortable, cause too many questions to be asked, and even hinder the progress of our work to say, no, you can't be a part of this. Following the model of the Gospels allows us to tell people there actually is a hierarchy here, and you're not in it. And then we can tell them, but I still love you. Right? Because that's what Jesus did. Following the model of Acts 10, we, this reconciliation absolutely happens through the blood of Christ. But the model is completely unprecedented. For Peter to baptize Cornelius into the family, he had to go against everything he saw Jesus do. Not everything. He had to go against. He never saw Jesus do this. This was unprecedented. And we have to take to heart that Jesus knew what he was doing. That yes, he came to offer his body as a living sacrifice, and that would allow everybody to be reconciled back to Creator. But prior to that sacrifice, he was still living under the law, and the law required him, if he was going to keep that law per perfectly so he could be the perfect sacrifice, that required him to live separate from the Gentiles. One of the things that's most impressive about Jesus is that he trained his disciples so unbelievably well to follow the work of the Spirit and to recognize what the Spirit was doing that when they saw what the Spirit was doing, they threw out everything they thought they knew 
and they followed this path. And the fact that Peter said, there's nothing to prevent me from baptizing you. So this is why nothing's changed. We're following the wrong model. And the reason the work is so hard is because there is no model. We are trying to figure out something that actually is rarely referenced in the scriptures. And to do this is going to require, yes, understanding the story of God's covenant with the people of Israel. Yes, understanding Jesus' ministry among the Jewish people. But what did Paul preach and what did Paul preach over and over and over again? He was the apostle to the Gentiles. What did he preach? He preached Christ and within that he preached what? Christ's healings, Christ's interactions, Christ's miracles. No, he cre preached Christ crucified. And now we have this incredible unopened space, our unexplored space. But we've been given the Holy Spirit who is going to lead us and prompt us and show us how to build this kind of radical inclusivity. And I want to encourage you in that. I want to encourage you to continue pressing down this road that you are on, to ask these questions, and to not be afraid if the Holy Spirit prompts you to go in a direction that doesn't feel safe, that feels uncharted. Learn how to recognize the Spirit of God. Learn how to understand what the Spirit of God is doing and how to, how to notice that. And then don't be afraid to follow it. That's the only way we're ever going to build these radically inclusive churches. That it's been 2,000 years and we haven't done it yet. Let me pray for us. Creator, we are humbled. We thank you for the trajectory of all of the scriptures that point to a radical inclusion of all of your creation. We're excited to be a part of the story that you're writing. We're excited that we do get included in. We pray that we will not be a hindrance to what your spirit is trying to do. We are absolutely grateful for the blood of Christ. We thank you for sending your son Jesus and for the sacrifice that he made that we might be reconciled back to you. And we pray that you will open our eyes to see how your Holy Spirit is now actively working to bring about this incredible family that you want to draw together. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.